Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The information depicted in this podcast is purely for informational purposes only. Please consult your healthcare professional before making any changes to your lifestyle or routine. Hey everyone and welcome to the Boost Your Biology podcast. My name is Lucas and I'm the founder of Ergogenic Health. Together in this podcast series, we will go underground to explore cutting edge health and human performance insights that you simply cannot search on Google to help you upgrade your existence. So without any further ado, let's jump into today's episode. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Boost Your Biology podcast. I am very thrilled for today's podcast because I have a supremely special guest joining me today all the way from Brazil. Some of his work has featured in Men's Health, Iron Mind, T Nation, AARR, and many more publications. His work has been recently translated into Dutch, Norwegian, Spanish, Polish, Turkish, Italian, Chinese, Bulgarian, Portuguese, and German. He is an experienced physique coach, including several pro card winning clients and has received international prizes in physique sports and powerlifting. Mano, welcome to the show, man. My pleasure. Good to be on. Awesome, man. So maybe do you want to give my listeners a bit of a, a background into how you got into, I guess, physique training and, and exercise science? Sure. I've always been into every sport that was doable in my my locale and it's it's always been my passion to do strength training and more generally work on self-improvement i think that's more the uh the way to 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 look at it for me and i started a career as a business consultant which was more the career that was sort of what my parents and my teachers and like wanted of me because you know it's prestigious and it's what you're supposed to do if you can you're you're not supposed to become a personal trainer if you can become a lawyer and uh, stuff but it, it never really had my passion. So while it was all fine, it wasn't really that made, what made me think like, you know, this is it. This is how I want to spend my life. And, you know, optimizing the algorithms for an insurance company was not really what made me feel like I could go home 
later on in life and tell my kids like, you know, well, daddy made an insurance company a lot of money today, kids. We ripped off a lot of people. Yay. <laughs> so it's, it's a lot more gratifying to, to actually do online personal training and educate people, help people directly. Um, and like with my book, help people improve their whole, their whole lives rather than just, you know, do work. Mm. So uh, that's basically things. When I started writing, things kind of took a turn on themselves. I didn't really plan for it, but people started asking me for coaching. That went well. Over time, people started asking me how I get these kind of client results. That led to my PT course. And that's now an old certification program. We have about a thousand students per year. Uh, I think we're well over that actually this year. And those are the two things, the two main things I still do. My PT course for fitness education, getting people certified as personal trainers. Although about 50% of people actually just do it for self-improvement. And my um, online coaching is still what I also spend a lot of time on. And then recently I released a book, which is more uh, back to the overall theme of self-improvement. And it's about the science of self-control rather than purely about you know, muscle growth, fat loss, and body recomposition. Awesome, man. Awesome. Yeah, let's, let's dive a little bit deeper into your latest book, um, The Science of Self-Control. Um, I'd love to, I'd love to explore, like, how did that come about? And, you know, what, what really inspired you to, to write that? Yeah, like I said, it always, I'd always been into self-improvement more generally than just, you know, physical improvement. I really like the, the Renaissance idea of the ancient Greeks and the Romans that every person should strive to sort of be the best version of themselves that they can be both physically and mentally. And a lot of these themes in the book don't lend themselves very well for a Facebook post or like a, you know, what is it, 150 characters on Twitter. So it, you really need a, a good understanding of self-control and some introduction on human psychology. So I kind of saved all of that up and had a lot of notes. And at some point I was like, this is more than enough for a book. Um, so I, I put it all together and then it still took three years to write it. And I learned a lot in the process, actually. Um which I think is actually one of the main reasons I scientifically reference everything. Like the book also is as in-text scientific references because it really forces you to be very concrete and specific and make sure that everything you say is really backed up by solid data. Mm. Awesome, awesome. I, I guess what we can do is um, let's dive deeper into, uh, I guess, behavioral choices and specifically around, um, obviously, with physique, you know, physique athletes, a common issue that they face um, is the cravings that they experience. So let's let's have a look at this topic of like food cravings. And I'd love to hear what your thoughts are in terms of um, how people can combat food cravings. Yeah, food cravings are, I think, one of the, the chapters in the book I've had some of the best feedback on. There are a lot of things you can do to mitigate them. And the most important thing I think that you should do which is exactly where people go wrong, is that the best way to kill a craving is to starve it. So there have been numerous studies, and I think this is really eye-opening for, for many people that are, you know, they're familiar with sort of the forbidden fruit effect because it's biblical. And they think that if you have a craving, you should satiate it. And now with this whole idea of flexible dieting, it's like, you know, moderation and those kind of things. That backfires completely. So if you look at all the studies on cravings, you can actually see that, for example, when one group is placed on a diet 
with nothing but shakes, like nothing but basically protein shakes, or extremely restrictive low-calorie diets, and other groups tried a more moderation approach, you consistently see that the more restricted people actually have the greater reductions in cravings. And the best way, generally, to get rid of a craving is to simply not consume that food. More specifically, basically forget about it. A craving is like a word in your vocabulary. You know, there are a lot of words that you have in your active vocabulary. And what you want is you want to get them, you want to get the craving to your passive vocabulary. That's a good analogy, I think. So it's not like you don't know that it's there anymore. But when I walk past the McDonald's, I don't consider that as an option for food. Like I'm, I'm you know, objectively aware that they sell food, but there is nothing in my mind that makes me go like, oh, shall I eat here? Because I've, I have the McDonald's, I don't know, I think I've had McDonald's once, <laughs> but, you know, it, over a decade at least. So that's basically what you want. Now, there is some, the forbidden fruit effect can be real, but the key there is to realize that you're not consuming a food because you don't think it's worth it, not because you can't eat it. That's where problems arise on the other side of the spectrum. We have a study showing that if you tell people, you, you're, well, you're going on a diet, and two groups go on the same kind of diet, but one group is also told, listen, guys, you can't consume any bread. You know, everything is okay. Here are some diet rules, but you really cannot consume bread. And then what do people want? It's like bread, I want bread. <laughs> so that, that's the forbidden fruit effect. Like when you're, it, it only glorifies the food, right? Especially if you don't tell people why you shouldn't consume it. Because I think for a lot of people, it actually makes sense not to consume too much bread. It's very palatable. It's too easy to, um, to consume a lot of. It's generally bad things that you put on bread. And, you know, a lot of people are actually intolerant to wheat or gluten in some form. So, you know, there are good reasons not to consume bread, but if you just tell people like you can't have bread, then everyone's like, I want bread, I want bread. <laughs> so that's how you also get cravings. But if you're just like, well, because of these reasons, I don't consume bread, I don't really like bread in the first place. At some point, you basically just forget about it. You don't get bread cravings anymore. Hmm. It's fascinating. Um, the other day, I was, I was literally thinking about something quite similar to that. Um, it, was, it was around the sort of principle of does food taste good when you know you shouldn't be eating it like as in like you're doing something something secret or you're breaking the rules like you know when people break the rules and they eat something let's say sweet do you think that it's possible that the body has a greater physiological response to that food knowing that they're not allowed to be eating it yeah it's not a it's not a greater physical response but mentally it, it glorifies the food mm. so you feel like it's yeah, that, that's, that's basically what happens. You just think more of it. And I, I realized this very well. For example, personally, I never really liked rice. And when I would just ate, still, I just ate whatever before I became very into fitness. I basically never ate rice. Uh, just, you know, even when I could, I had no restrictions on rice. Just never ate it. Didn't care for it. So it was like, eh, you know, it doesn't have much taste. Don't like the texture that much. And Later in fitness, when I got into contest prep, I started dieting for photo shoots. At some point, I got into this idea that, you know, rice is, uh, I want rice. Like, I don't know why, but it's some, some form, maybe I found some recipes on it. And 
I think I think it was actually after India, where they had some really nice rice dishes, or maybe Thailand. In any case, probably in Asia. And I got it into my idea that I like rice, which is not even true. <laughs> but then I thought, well, it's highly caloric. I can't have it in my diet. And then I actually started experiencing rice cravings. And I've had the same with some foods over time. And you have to basically reset yourself and think, I don't even like this stuff. You know, it's it's not that good. And you just have to basically get over it and make yourself think of why you're not consuming these foods. That's the key. Mm. Awesome, awesome. Let's let's sort of transition and and dive around the topic of flavors because I know you've got a, a, a section in the book which discusses um, free glutamate or the umami flavor to improve self-control and decrease appetite. So do you want to explain, first of all, what that free glutamate is uh, is referring to? Yeah, that's uh, free glutamate. Is a, glutamate is an amino acid that's occurring naturally occurring in a lot of food, but it's usually in the bound form. There are only a few foods that are rich in free glutamate, and those include, for example, tomatoes, mushrooms, and more synthetically, MSG. MS, MSG is monosodium L-glutamate, so basically sodium and glutamate stuck together. And most people just know it as the the evil, toxic Chinese voodoo stuff that they, the Chinese put in your food to make you eat more. And recently, there have been two studies that actually found that if you put MSG in soup without people knowing it, they eat less afterwards. And you can see in their brain that the regions that are responsible for self-control are more active. Wow. So you can, this is like one of the, the, the craziest things uh, I think in the book that is like a, a genuine biohack, which if you have something with free glutamate, that improves self-control and thereby also reduces energy intake. So if you have, for example, tomato soup or mushroom soup, or whatever you have first in uh, that you add MSG to, then you should actually have a much easier time dieting and also increase your overall um productivity by um or at least willpower mm, that's that's fascinating i guess um something that comes to my mind there is if the free glutamate is improving that self-control after ingestion makes me wonder whether it's actually lighting up or in uh invigorating that reward pathway a lot first and then you have more control because now you know you've got you've mm. got your hit you've got your reward and now You've got control. We know that glutamate is a neurotransmitter. And we also know that even in our mouth, we already have uh, M-glu-R receptors, I think they're called. And they basically detect glutamate, but only when it's in free form. When it's bound, the receptors cannot, it doesn't hit the receptors yet, which is probably why you need the, the free glutamate. And that's why you probably get the effect relatively rapidly, because as soon as it's in your mouth, you're brain knows it's there and it's going to start affecting brain activity. Mm. Something else um, I'd love to explore with you is um, which foods which foods hit the spot the best for some people. So like, I don't know if you've sort of explored um, the, the combination, you know, combination of high sugar, high fat, mm-hmm. what sort of implications that has on our, I guess, um, you know, appetite and satiety. Yeah, most people... Uh, it's actually funny, going back to cravings, a lot of people have this idea that they have certain cravings. Uh, people like to tell themselves that it's for physical reasons, like they need, the, they need the nutrients. I actually go into that in the book in a lot of ways. Also during pregnancy for chocolate, there's an abundance of research showing it's not true. 
like a physical disorder, she can see it. We do not crave things because our body needs it. Our body has no clue. Our body just craves one specific thing or one specific category of foods. And that's high carb, high fat. And protein is not really relevant. Usually it's also low protein, but the things people crave the most are things that are rich in carbs and fats, you know, preferably both at the same time, which is most junk foods, right? You never hear anyone say like, ah, I really need asparagus, you know? Like I'm, I'm, I'm craving asparagus so much right now. So that's, well, some, maybe, maybe pregnant women. You can see some crazy stuff. If you look at um, uh, different cultures with what pregnant women crave, and it also goes to show that it's cultural because in different cultures, pregnant women crave completely different things. In mm. some uh, African cultures, they actually have super, super healthy cravings. Whereas in the West, the most common craving or the most common aversion during pregnancy, I think, is meat. And meat is actually one of the things that has exactly the nutrients that pregnant women need more of, which is zinc, iron, and protein, which goes to show that the, the cravings are, are not a, f- a physical thing, but really just a, a, culture, a cultural thing. It's specifically hunger given a shape by basically your, your, your mental experience. Like if you smell certain foods or you hear about certain foods or you know you cannot have certain foods, those things are in your mind. And then the hunger gives, gets the shape of that food, gets that mental representation, and then we call it a craving. But funny enough, I think 80% of languages or something uh, don't even have a word for craving or food addiction. So, and that goes to show it's not a real thing. It's mostly in the West and mostly in societies where we have a lot of advertising and we're really occupied with dieting in general, there we see a lot of food cravings. But I think I'm going off thing. What was the question? Uh, that's fascinating. It was more sort of around, um, yeah, the, the combination of proteins, fats, and um, sorry, the fats and carbohydrates, but more, oh, yeah. Right. Yeah, more so now that, now that you got, got, me, got me thinking is um, the satiety index in relation to like protein, fat, carb, and fiber um, mm-hmm. I personally don't even know the answer to this. Which one is the most satiating? So the, that's actually a good question. The main thing to realize is that it's more so about the specific foods than the macronutrients. Mm. So you can have, there's research, for example, that even goat milk and cow's milk have different satiety index profiles, even though the macronutrients are essentially identical. I mean, their texture even is similar and everything. It's just, subtle differences in texture and taste can still have a big difference. Mm. And you can have, you know, when we talk about fat, a lot of people like to group these things together, especially people in fitness have become sort of so uh, brainwashed essentially by micronutrients that we think carbs and fats. Whereas there's a world of difference, biochemically speaking, between avocado and butter. You know, so they're, they're both fats, but they have completely different effects and have a completely different satiety index. So the, the, the exact macros are, are not nearly as important as other factors like food and texture. There is a lot of support, though, for protein and fiber. Those are generally very, very satiating. And I'm, I'm a big proponent of fiber. If you look at ancestral cultures, traditional cultures, you can see that fiber intakes were very high. We evolved on very, very high fiber intakes, like way, way more than people consume now. I mean, we're talking, I think, the lowest estimates of traditional societies and hunter-gatherers, it's like around 50 grams, and the estimates go up to about 200. And I think, and actually, there's at least one study, they found 250. 
uh, grams per day on average. Crazy. So some people consume more, you know? So, and that's because we're used to eating lots and lots and lots of plants. And these days we're eating a lot more processed foods that don't have fiber. Mm. So fiber is a really big one. Protein is also satiating, but I've actually conducted um, uh, a study on this recently testing whether high protein diets, if you're already getting enough protein, are still inherently more satiating than other diets. And we found that they are not. And there's a good theory for this and a lot of research supports that's called protein leverage theory, which basically says that a bit like sodium, our body senses the amount of uh, protein we consume, or more specifically, the amount of amino acids we consume. And if we're not, we don't have enough yet because there's no storage capacity for protein other than muscle, which is not very efficient. What happens is that our body keeps our appetite up. And we see this very well in animals. Animals can even select complementary amino acid profiles if you just let them choose foods randomly. And they also eat higher protein diets like intuitively. And humans tend to do the same based on the research we have when we're growing uh, and when requirements are higher. So we tend to intuitively sort of force ourselves to eat enough food so that we consume enough protein, which has the result that if you're on a low-protein diet, you keep eating because the body's like, okay, we know we've had a lot, a lot of these other nutrients, but we want the protein because essential protein we need and we cannot store. So we just need that basically every day. Mm, fascinating, fascinating. Something else around that, I guess, once we've met our um, requirements for protein, and I'd love to hear what your thoughts are in terms of how many grams per kilogram, because that's discussed mm-hmm. almost everywhere. The, the, the going golden rule is 1.6 to 2.2. I'd love to hear your stance on, let's say that we've met our um, protein requirements and we go above and beyond. How does that affect body composition? Yeah, we, um, I think the best answer on this is the latest meta-analysis on protein requirements. Well, it's not the latest anymore, actually, but still, I think one of the best because it's well-controlled uh, that I co-offered with some of the, the brightest minds in fitness, uh, or I think there are some of the brightest people. And we found very strong support for basically the same figure that's been around since Tarnopolsky and Lemon in the 90s, uh, and that's 1.6, 1.6 gram per kilogram per day, total body weight, total protein intake. So this is assuming an omnivorous diet for vegetarians. And in some scenarios, it's different. But for most people, 1.6 is, is about where you see no more benefits. You see in protein uh, balance research that at that point, the excess protein is oxidized. And you see in longitudinal studies that there's no increase in muscle growth anymore, no increase in strength when you increase protein intakes beyond that level. Now, I like to go with 1.8 gram per kilogram per day based on research by Lemon, where he shows that there's some inter-individual variability. So theoretically, you know, we have some special snowflakes among us that have a bit higher protein requirement. And if you add two standard deviations for that, you account for um, the vast, vast majority of the population uh, being covered. So if you get a minimum of 1.8 gram protein, per kilogram total body weight every day, you're probably covered. Mm, Awesome, awesome. Cool. Well, I'd love to go back to fiber. Um, I'd love to hear your stance on, obviously, right now the carnivore diet is trending quite quite nicely. Um, And, you know, a lot of the proponents of the, you know, carnivore diet stress that fiber is essentially not useful, not necessary, 
I'd love to get your stance on, you know, what's your perspective on on fiber and its relation to health? Uh, it's not necessary. That's true. So I'll, I'll give them that. Um, that's pretty much all I give them <laughs> because I think that, and for health, there is an abundance of research showing fiber has positive health benefits. We know both theoretically why it does it. It reduces uh, cholesterol levels. Uh, it's very satiating, so it helps with uh, body weight reduction. It reduces uh, blood sugar levels. It increases uh, short-chain fatty acid production in the gut, which is uh, both satiating and uh, good for our health. Fiber has lots of benefits to um, improve our digestive health, prebiotic effects to have more good bacteria, probiotics in our gut. So there's a long list of mechanical health effects and a great deal of scientific studies that find that higher fiber diets result in health improvements. And generally people with higher fiber diets have um, better health. Plus, you know, we have the sort of paleo ancestral argument that it's natural for humans to actually live on very high fiber intakes. However, all of that said, some people really don't feel well when they consume a high fiber diet or specifically a certain diet that happens to be high in fiber. And in my experience, this is because of FODMAPs. FODMAPs are certain fermentable fibers, um, something that a lot of people in fitness are not really aware of. But almost most people, I'd say, have some degree of FODMAP intolerance to certain FODMAPs. Like a, a very popular common one is a wheat, and also very famous is lactose. The majority of the world, not in the Western world, but in the total world, the majority of the world is lactose intolerant. Lactose is a FODMAP. So unless you have the genetic mutation that lets your body keep producing lactase later in life, because for most people it stops as a child, you have trouble digesting lactose very well. Now, for, for most things, it's a, bit, it's a bit more complicated than that. But most people do have beans, for example, make them gassy, or certain types of vegetables, as, as especially cruciferous vegetables, um, can have certain detrimental effects. And you're talking gassiness, cramping, uh, bloating, so abdominal swelling, water retention, those are common effects. Sometimes diarrhea, but usually it's more the uh, constipation side of problems when they consume these fault maps. And usually fault map concentrations and fiber concentrations are high in the same foods. So many high fiber foods are high in fault maps. So what I think happens is that a lot of people that have more severe fault map intolerance than average are really drawn to these low-carb diets because when they cut out these foods, they feel a lot better. They don't have the bloating, their stomach looks flatter, you know, they, um, and it, it's not just digestive effects either. It can affect your mood, well-being, fatigue levels. So they just feel overall much better when they cut out these foods. But the real solution is finding the fibers that you do tolerate, and typically berries, strawberries, if you, if you Google Monash University low FODMAP foods, you have a good list. Monash University has some pretty good research. Uh, don't take the lists with, uh, uh, I'd say take the list with a grain of salt because FODMAP tolerances are very individual and FODMAP concentrations can vary per region and per production method. So it's very hard. And for most people, you just need to experiment for yourself which foods you tolerate and which you do not. Like if I eat sugar alcohols, like a protein bar, or even toothpaste or like gum, which has sugar alcohols, then I get cramps so bad, I feel like I'm having contractions. 
Like, I'm serious. It's, it's so bad. The first time I had it, um, when I was presenting in Norway with, with Berger Fagerli, and I had one quest bar on an empty stomach. I never had a quest bar before. And we were going to Mongolian all-you-can-eat buffet. And before we even got there, like within 20 minutes, I was the pain was so bad that I was cramping up. I was, I was seriously considering going to the hospital. Wow. So I'm really, really intolerant to sugar alcohols. And I think sugar alcohols are actually also the reason that many people think uh, artificial sweeteners give them digestive problems because sugar alcohols are poorly tolerated by a lot of people. And a lot of people just group all artificial sweeteners together. So they think aspartame, sucralose, sugar alcohols, it's all like kind of the same for them. But when you look at the research, aspartame, sucralose, uh, especially those two, have a really, really good safety record. And lots and lots of research supports that they are safe and they don't have digestive effects. I mean, sucralose is basically not digested at all. So also now lots of research that they don't have adverse effects on our gut microbiota. So have a very I have a very extensive article on my website actually on that because it's such a popular myth. Um, but yeah, the, the key for, for most people, I think, is to just simply find which of those food maps you do tolerate and which you don't tolerate, and then incorporate the ones that you do tolerate into your diet and build on that. Yeah, I think that's really, really great advice um, for those listening in. Definitely do check out some of those resources. And I'd love to... Since we're on the topic of like the sugar alcohols and different types of sweeteners, um, yeah, I'd love to. You sort of just mentioned aspartame and and sucralose has no deleterious effects on the microbiome. Do you want to mm-hmm. guess if maybe do you want to start with like top three best sweeteners in your opinion, and then sort of work your way down? I think you only need two. Uh, I think that's. I guess you could say acesulfil, acesulfin, potassium is is like sort of combined it's usually combined with aspartame so that would be number three i guess number one is sucralose because of a few reasons one it has a really good safety record it's not digested so there's basically not even a theoretical possibility for much adverse effects i mean it could have effects without being digested but that's a bit of reach um it has the taste that's closest to sugar like sucralose is well it's actually basically made from sugar so it, it tastes very much like sugar. It doesn't have the texture. If you want the texture, I think, well, maybe that would be number three. If you want the texture, you should try erythritol. Problem is, it's a sugar alcohol. So all of the, the bad stuff I just discussed, erythritol is relatively well tolerated. But um, in large amounts, most people do get issues. Hmm. So the nice thing about it is that it has the crystal-like texture that uh, sugar also has. Sucralose's only downside is that it does not have that texture, that crystallized uh, st- structure. But other than that, it tastes much like sugar. It's about 2,000 times as sweet, so make sure you dose it accurately. Uh, and I recommend either liquid or powder, because if you buy the packs of Splenda, they still have four calories per pack. And if you use as much of the stuff as I do, that actually adds up, and it's just a lot of sugar that you're consuming for no reason, especially if you're doing carnivore keto diets or you have... Um, uh, blood sugar issues, then you don't want to consume that extra sugar. It's just complete waste. Mm. Uh, the reason they're allowed to say it's zero calories is because of a manufacturing loophole uh, or like a loophole in the law that allows them to manufacture these things when the calorie content of the total serving size is below four calories. And it's actually 3.8 typically. And that allows them to say zero, to round down to zero, even though it's basically the same amount of calories as sugar per gram. Wow. Just 
complete uh, complete <laughs> abuse. But um, yeah, sucralose number one, aspartame number two. Uh, aspartame is also super safe, uh, great safety record. Uh, the only problem is that sucralose you can bake with, it's heat resistant, and, uh, and aspartame you cannot, which is why aspartame is typically found in like diet sodas and cold products, typically combined with uh, acesulfame potassium uh, to sort of uh, mellow out the, uh, the effect and give it the most sugar-like taste. But, but you can use it for cold stuff, um, and it's great. And like I said, erythritol would probably be number three because it has the structure that's most like sugar. Mm. So if you wanted to use it with pancakes or something, then that's a good one. So just to confirm, sucralose, is, is that found in nature or is that, um, like, how is that? No, it's, um, it's derived from sugar, essentially, from sucrose. Um, but it's not found in this form in nature. Mm. Interesting. Uh, aspartame is also not found in this specific form in nature, but your aspartame is actually broken down into metabolites that are also found in tomatoes and a lot of other products. So the metabolites are perfectly natural. If you want something, uh, but like I said, even though it's not natural, it's not digested sucralose. So it's like, if you want, if you want something really natural, you could go with stevia. Uh, but the problem is stevia actually does not have the same 4-0 safety record as aspartame and sucralose. People just assume it's safe because it's natural. And it is safe. Like, there are also lots of research. Not quite as much. And it has a very bitter metallic aftertaste. So, you know, fine if you want the sugar. Uh, sugar. Um, if you want the sugar that is most like, um, most natural uh, and still somewhat like sugar without the calories, then stevia is great. But uh, for most people, I found they don't really stick to it. And they, it, it's for some people, for me, like it's actually so, so bad. It's funny enough. It's, it's the most natural, but it tastes the most artificial, which is why a lot of people are just eventually like, ah, oh, just li- I, you know, le- learn to drink my coffee or my tea. Um, pure. Yeah. Awesome. So maybe let's sort of switch gears and, um, transition and discuss a little bit around, um, workout timing. Um, I don't know what sort of interesting research you've 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 seen in this sort of realm like the timing of our workouts and i guess um trying to sync it up with our with our biorhythm mm-hmm. yeah so there's actually uh it's one of those things that i think a lot of people don't really uh think about but the timing of your workout also matters like nutrient timing matters of course um some people this this id with if it fits your macros that nutrient timing doesn't matter but that's just completely ludicrous. Like, there's nobody, no researcher that actually believes that. Uh, the only question is, to what extent does it matter and when? Because if you think about it, if you just have, say, one meal per month, like, you can actually live that way. Uh, you can fast for a month and then have just one meal. Um, but, there, there, you know, is there anyone in their right mind that thinks you're gonna, that's going to be optimal for muscle growth? Like, of course not. It's not going to be optimal for anything. So, uh, nutrient timing matters. And uh, workout timing also matters, but most research finds that you can get used to most patterns. So if you just look at studies where they they switch or like short-term research, then typically the afternoon is best. And most world records are actually broken in the afternoon for strength and strength endurance-like sports. So afternoon to early evening, I think theoretically the the optimal window is 2.30, to 8.30, 
assuming you sleep at somewhat normal hours. And that's because core body temperature hits, is at its peak during those hours. So you're, there's actually a physical rationale for why you're stronger uh, at that time. And you can, you can see it in lots of sports, lots of research on it. But if you consistently train at a different time, you can get your body used to that. And there's a meta-analysis showing that the overall timing is probably not so important as long as you do it consistently. Mm. And one uh, nice trick you can use if you train early in the morning, which is theoretically the worst time to train, is to use caffeine. Because caffeine, the effects of caffeine are effectively entirely the opposite of sleep deprivation. So it effectively forces you to be awake, which is also how it feels, right? So um, if you have workouts some in the morning, some later, then I'd reserve most of your caffeine intake so you can use it in the mornings and then should offset the negative uh, biorhythm effect of not having um, your, your body in train to train at that time, in particular, not having peak core body temperature. Hmm. Fascinating. Something that came to my mind there is um, the hormonal alterations. Obviously, we have our circadian rhythm in terms of melatonin peaks at mm -hmm. night and cortisol peaks in the morning. We, you sort of said one of the benefits of training in the afternoon, strength training-wise, is that our core body temperature is elevated. Mm -hmm. Is there any link there with, with thyroid hormones? Is that a time when T3 maybe is most active or any effects on thyroid hormones at all? Uh, I don't think so. I think free T3 concentrations peak in the morning and T4 concentrations are relatively stable throughout the entire day. There is some research, I think, that the uh, testosterone to cortisol ratio is also most positive mm -hmm. in the afternoon because cortisol has a major peak in the morning, which is actually part of the reason that, that wakes you up, uh, which is actually a good thing. It's not like that's a negative uh, thing. It's just your body waking up and getting uh, some stress effectively, again, because otherwise you'd stay asleep. Um, but that, that might play a role. Most research, though, finds that for muscle growth and fat loss, these acute hormonal elevations are not that relevant. It's just too temporary, too transient to have much uh, of an effect. Like, if you look at drugs, then it still takes, uh, like, anerogenic anabolic steroids, for example. You can see that it still takes weeks, weeks to months for massively super physiological testosterone levels around the clock to have significant effects. Mm. Interesting. Fascinating. So I'd sort of love to um, sort of segue and, and discuss a little bit around, I guess, when it comes to, and this is a question I've always wanted to know, is around um, the, the protein intake. Let's say somebody's in a, uh, in a minor caloric deficit. They're trying to build muscle, but they're in a minor caloric deficit, but they meet their 1.6 to 1.8 grams of protein, is it still possible for them to build muscle? Absolutely. There's lots of research showing you can build muscle in energy deficit. In fact, the, the whole idea that there's, it's impossible to build fat-free mass in energy deficit is essentially ludicrous at face value because it would mean that if you have a surgery, for example, if you're in hospital and they don't give you enough food to be an energy surplus, and good luck with hospital food, you know, especially if you're big guy or a woman that um there's there's no way you're, you're getting enough food to be in energy plus and what in that state then theoretically you your heart couldn't recover your organs couldn't recover uh you, you couldn't you couldn't heal from anything so 
it's, it's clearly not the case. You see in lots of studies, especially in beginners. In fact, in beginners, it's the norm. It's completely normal. Like even in 80-year-olds, if you put them on a strength training program, even without dietary modifications, typically you'll see they're about like two kilos of muscle, lose two, two kilos of fat in the span of uh, eight to 12 weeks. So that's uh, the, the fact that it's possible is completely undebatable. The only debate is how advanced can you be and still recomp? And actually you see that in some studies, you still see bo positive body recomposition in physique athletes, uh, high level athletes like gymnasts. So it's still possible uh, at a certain point, if you're like close to your genetic limits, if those exist, that's a bit debatable. Uh, I think they do, but um, there's actually no hard data that we have a, a, a natty max. And um, at, at that point, then it's, it's probably impossible. And what I also see with my clients, for me as well, I'm not recomping anymore. Uh, I need to bulk to put on more muscle. But for the majority of people, especially beginners, intermediate lifters, you can recomp very effectively. Mm, fascinating. So something else that you're quite well known to talk about is um, the testosterone level or observing somebody's or gauging someone's prenatal testosterone levels just by having a look at their fingers. Now, this is going to be supremely fascinating to my audience. So do you want to explore this crazy finding? Yeah, that's one of those uh, stranger than fiction kind of uh, things. But we have lots of data on the fact that there are two markers of someone's hands that actually correlate surprisingly consistently with prenatal testosterone exposure. Now, the correlations aren't major. You know, you need a large sample of people, and it doesn't mean that if you, you can tell by someone's fingers for sure how they are, for example, if they're homosexual, because research finds that, you know, but in a large sample, you can actually see that on average, people with fingers like this are more likely to be homosexual, better at sports, etc. So the two markers are, one, the 2D, 4D ratio. It's the ratio of the length of your fingers. So the index and the ring finger have a certain ratio between each other, right? One is longer than the other. So your ring finger as a guy, like for me also, ring finger is longer than the index finger. That's normal for men. For women, the approximate ratio is about equal. And this means you add, if your ring finger is indeed longer than your index finger, you add a relatively high amount of prenatal testosterone exposure, which is normal for men. And you see all consequences of that, um, again, in large, in large studies, uh, that you would think. If you have more testosterone exposure, you're typically, you typically have uh, a mind that's more spatially oriented and less socially oriented. And you're, uh, I think it is for, for women in particular, if you have long ring fingers, you're more likely to be homosexual. For guys, it's not so much a difference. And you can also see that within homosexuals, the woman, women with the longer ring fingers are more likely to be butch than femme. And a surprising amount of behavioral cognitive variance. Uh, and for, for, for my purposes, what I originally found it for was that sports performance is consistently better if for, in people that have longer uh, ring fingers than index fingers. Basically, the longer your ring finger, the better. Uh, it's, it's for both hands, but I think there is uh, the right hand is slightly more predicted. It, there's some controversy about it. 
Um, but generally, if you have really, really long ring fingers, that means you had a lot of retained testosterone exposure. Typically, also have higher testosterone levels, testosterone levels later in life. Um, but overall, you're just a bit more masculinized, essentially. So you're likely to do well in sports. Sumo wrestlers, for example, their ranking corresponds with the length of their ring fingers. Uh, many other sports as well. <laughs> and the second marker that you can tell by someone's hands is uh, mid-phalangeal hair, which is, um, again, correlated strongly with testosterone exposure. And it's on the second to last uh, digit of your hands. I actually don't have mid-phalangeal hair. I have hair everywhere except here. <laughs> so yeah, it's a bit of a mixed... <laughs> me yeah. too. Yeah. It's a bit of a mixed message in terms of uh, testosterone levels. But if you have a lot of hair on the, the second to last index uh, or phalanx, uh, part of your finger, like bone, then you also have more um, prenatal testosterone exposure. And the more hair you have there, the more you likely have. And again, that correlates with all the, the, the same things. So if you see someone that has like, if you are a talent scout, for example, for uh, sports, then you should look at people's fingers and see if the people that have really long ring fingers, both men and women, it's, it's the same, uh, and hairy ring fingers, then that's an indication they may very well uh, be really good. I'm just um, I'm just picturing like a talent scout at the end of an, at the end of a sporting match going up to a one of the athletes wanting to shake their hand, but instead of shaking their hand, they're like just look at, <laughs> look at their hand. Um, that's fascinating because um, yeah, I talk quite a lot around testosterone optimization, um, mm. which is yeah really really interesting, and I, I bet there's like majority of my listeners right now are probably observing their hands, so it's pretty yeah. Pretty- that's what you you commonly see uh, these things. So what about in terms of um, there is another effect that you've discussed um, and it's the zygonic, zygonic effect to stop procrastination. Do you want to um, just explain that briefly? Yeah, it's from uh, German, zygonic. And uh, originally I think it came from the observation that waiters were more likely to remember unpaid orders and then that's prompted the, some researchers to investigate the effect that um, we seem very discontent as humans to know about things that we started but did not complete. So the opposite side of that is that when we start something, we have extra incentive and extra motivation instantly to complete it. And the, the nice thing for that is uh, I discussed this as a productivity tip in my uh, in my book that you can use that effect to make yourself complete projects because for a lot of people one of the biggest problems is starting in the first place you know there are many people they have no no problem with ideas but they don't finish through they don't finish their projects and you can take advantage of this effect the psychonic effect by making a very small commitment to start a project for example what i do with client emails uh, sometimes is I will tell myself before I can have dinner, I'm just going to set up the email. Like I have to create a program for a new client. I just I just set up the email. Like I put it in my general template of what I sent them. I just open the Excel file and name it like this is, you know, this and this program. And that's it. And very often you see that you actually end up finishing a lot of the program because when I do step one, 
I know, okay, this is step two, this is step two, three, this is step four. And you, you naturally start filling in a lot of things. And before you know it, you're, you're halfway down. And then you think, oh, okay, I can actually just finish it now. <laughs> so it's, it's really powerful to tell yourself to make small commitments, but make them concrete and specific so that you know this is something you can do, so that you're sure you start, and then you're much more likely to actually finish up on it, rather than if you, you know, a lot of people have this, um, when they, they start a project, it's like, in their minds, for example, in the, the example of creating a program for new clients, in their mind is creating the entire program for a client. And that's very daunting. And there's a lot of things that you have to think about. But if you just tell yourself, set up the email, you know, open the files, name them, just create the structure, which basically requires no brain power at all, then it's much easier later to just start filling it in. Mm, makes sense. I think I do that subconsciously with um with some emails myself. I I'll get the draft going. It sort of sits in draft. I'll come back and revisit it. And it's a lot easier because you've already that first hurdle of just breaking it down into that micro task is the is the most difficult. So once you get over that hurdle, the rest is is pretty easy. Um, yeah, the productivity side of things is a it's a whole new realm because again, um, a lot of people out there struggling with you know, the ability to focus or um, another another productivity killer is um, is task switching. Um, just having like personally myself, if I have more than let's say two or three tabs open at once, like that's the max that I, if I have any more than that, it's like, it's going to be a messy session sort of thing. Definitely. There's, there's good research that humans are terrible multitaskers and it's actually the people that are worse at it, that tend to do it the most. Because there are people that are not organized, they're not structured, so they're likely to do a lot of things at the same time. But those are exactly the people that would benefit the most from giving themselves extra structure and focusing on just one thing, doing this, and then you finish this, then you do the next thing. Yeah. So it's really important not to, um, in your browser and everything, that's actually, those are things that, in the book, I go into how to set up your inbox, how to customize your browser. You want basically minimal distractions at all times. Your desktop, also something very important. You don't want distractions there. You want everything clean and optimized. Um, and one big tip for email is turning off that you can read part of the starting email because that's terrible because you'll, you'll read the first sentences for everything and it enters your working memory and you cannot you know, unsee it, what has been seen. So it's um, it's going to be falling around in the, in the back of your mind and just occupying mental space, which is going to distract you and uh, reduce your willpower and productivity until you've um, sent the email or read the whole thing and figured out what you have to do with it. So you can put it in the drawer and move it away mentally. Yeah. Well, Menno, I think... Um... Today's been an absolute sensational podcast. I'm, I'm so happy that we, we managed to get it scheduled. Please let my listeners know where they can find you. And also, I'll be leaving a link, obviously, to the, the Science of Self-Control, the book in my description. Um, but where can they learn more about you? Uh, um, which you also see in the, in the links because nobody can um, pronounce or uh, type it. Not the best name if you want to get popular online. Um, but it's my real name. I'm Dutch. So on, on that site, you'll, you'll find everything. Uh, lots of free articles. If you're new to my contents, probably the best way is if you go on my site, 
Or if you go to metalentimals.com slash subscribe, you can get a free email newsletter. And I have a, a mini course, actually not so many courses. I think it's like 18 lessons that are free and gives you like a tour of my most popular contents and just a lot of free content. Beautiful. Awesome. All right, Mino. Well, yeah, thanks so much for joining on the show. It was a pleasure, a pleasure chatting. My pleasure. Yeah, Good Thank you, everyone, for joining in to today's episode. For in-depth show notes and lessons learned, visit nofilter.media forward slash boost your biology. This has been a No Filter Media production. Say what you want. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.